Pop Culture Affidavit Episode 106. It was the 90s. Episode 106 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. Well, it's back to comics and back to a decade that I've looked at a couple of times during my time doing this podcast, which is the 1990s. A little while ago, I bought a few random issues of Wizard, the guide to comics from the time I was heavy into collecting in the early 90s. Two of them were a research for a guest spot on Bailey's Batman podcast. Another was this issue, which is Wizard number 29. It was a year in review of 1993 and a look toward 1994, and it serves as a really good marker for the point where the speculation boom crested and was about to crash pretty hard. So, I thought it would be a pretty cool idea to take an article-by-article article look through the issue and really evaluate what they were saying at the time about the industry and the books. And this really does follow up a 2016 crossover that I did with Michael Bailey and Views from the Long Box. In that one, we spent two episodes talking about the 90s hype machine, including Wizard. And, and since we're now a full 25 years since uh, since 1994 and 20 years since 20 years since 2000, I thought that this would be a. I can't do this. I mean, look. We've all done the 90s bashing. We've all by now gone over and over the boom and the bust and the breasts and the muscles and the guns and the bullets and the pouches and the pouches and the pouches and the pouches. I've been spending four years bashing them on my Festivus episodes. And don't get me wrong, the comics that we spend time raking over the coals on those Festivus episodes deserve every word of the treatment that they get. So this is not going to be an apology for the 90s. You know, me telling you that you should have stockpiled multiple copies of Extreme Justice Number 1 because they really are worth more than gold or platinum or something. No, I, if I'm going to do a 90s episode, instead of just looking at one book, I really should kind of do a where was I in the 90s type of episode. Like, answer the questions for myself. I mean, a lot of people fell for the hype of the big number ones with their chromium covers and then the huge events and all the hype. But did I? You know, what was I buying if I look through Mike's Amazing World? Like, you know, what can I pick out that I was following on a regular basis? What are my key issues during those years? I think, I think that might be a better podcast episode. 
Yeah. Oh, and you know what? Yeah. I just realized I've done that. Not in the 90s. I did it for the 80s. That's exactly what I should do. This isn't an episode of Pop Culture Affidavit, people. No. I'm Tom Panneries, and welcome to Origin Story 2. It was the motherfucking 90s. Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are! I don't know who you are or where you came from. From now on, you do as I do. Okay? Alright, so I could never do an issue-by-issue look at all the comics I collected in the 1990s in real time like I did with that original origin story miniseries, because when I covered the books I read in 1986 and 1987, I knew that while it was a pretty big task, it was going to be finite. And very finite at that. But I started collecting comics again steadily in May and June of 1990, and from there, I never really looked back. So to even do the rest of 90 and then 91 would mean that I would basically be doing a weekly show covering several books at a time. That's not possible with my schedule. (laughs) But I can do this episode. And this is going to be a retrospective and rundown of 11 publications that came out between May of 1990 and December of 1995. And these are books that I consider key in my collecting for one reason or another. Why 11? I'd originally planned on 10 publications. I made a huge list. It was 27 publications, although that's way too many. And I narrowed it down and narrowed it down and narrowed it down. I could not get lower than 11. So we're going to go up to 11 for this. Yeah, I made that reference. Anyway, why May 1990 to December 1995? Well, because I was involved in some sort of May-December romance? No. Actually, it's because on June 5th, 1990. Detective Comics number 618 came out. And even though I bought the prior issue as well, I mark that as the beginning of my comics collecting because of the storyline and because how invested I got from there on out. December 15th, 1995 is the publication date, at least according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, of the New Titans number 130. That is the last issue of the series, and it was the core of my back issue collecting for that entire period also happens to be my favorite series of all time, as you know, because I did a whole blog thing about it years and years ago. Now, funny enough, those two books aren't on the list that I made, because even though Tech 618 is comic number one, there's another comic starring Tim Drake that I've put on this list right at the beginning. The New Titans issue isn't on the list because, well, it was the final entry of my life as as a Teen Titan, the blog series I just mentioned. In fact, there aren't really any Titans comics on this list because, you know, even though they're important, you know, 71 is important, 85 is important because it was my first letter ever published in a comic. Zero is important because it was my last letter ever published in a comic. The, uh, those two actually will get kind of mentioned on a future episode. They've also been covered as well. So aside from the Titans comics, I chose books that were personally significant. 
And unlike the original Origin Story miniseries, I'm not going to go give full summaries and reviews of them because it would take way too long. I am going to go a little bit more in-depth into Wizard 29 than everything else because it was the original purpose for this episode. But when I have to, I'll give you some plot overview and I will give you a little bit of of what I thought along with the uh, material. But for the most part, I want to kind of give you my story and why this book is significant to me. Now, much like there was a comics prehistory on the blog before I began Origin Story, where I wrote about comics that I had in the early to mid-80s before I picked up G.I. Joe and the Transformers number one, I will say that between late 1987 and May 1990, there were a few other comics I owned. They were books that I got when I popped into the comic store on occasion, that I got from friends, or that I bought at random. G.I. Joe 91 was one of those books, although I don't think I actually owned it. I remember reading it and seeing that somebody had written a letter into the book identifying Storm Shadow's unpronounced last name as Arishikage, or at least they were very close to it. And um, thank you to Aaron Head Moss for verifying that information uh, for me. Uh, I, I knew, th- I, I, I saw the issue cover, and I'm like, that's that's the issue that the letter is in, but I couldn't, I didn't have it on me. And of all the people, I was pretty sure that he knew it. So shout out to him, because that was an issue. That was a uh, a mystery that I've been trying to solve in comics for years. Um, you know, years being like one, but but I I remember reading it, uh, and 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 I remember having. Um, once gone to Epcot Center in Disney World, and I there was an open copy of a Japanese to English dictionary or English to Japanese dictionary, and I was looking through them to see if I could find the words for storm and shadow to to translate it. And then the guy, um, the the employee there, a uh, cast member there, had written storm and shadow the characters on my Epcot guidebook back cover, but I had forgotten to ask him how you pronounce those. And then my parents like yanked me out of the store, like, oh, we got to go or whatever, because, you know, God forbid they ever actually let me indulge anything. But um, for years, I, I cut that off the back of my Epcot guidebook and kept it in my wallet trying to figure out like if I could find like a J- English Japanese dictionary. And they had one at the Sable Public Library, but it was just characters from Japanese translated to English. It didn't go the other way. So I was kind of like, you know, shit out of luck for, for years and years with that until again, years and years being one or two, until this letter came around. And even at first, I remember not necessarily thinking that was correct, but then it seemed that, like, yes, that was correct. So, yeah, Arishikage. And uh, the other the other one that I have, I remember, was uh, Aliens number 5. This was the first Dark Horse, uh, black and white Dark Horse series. And it was not the first independent comic I bought. That would have been a Robotech issue, probably the one that I covered back on... Um, origin story, which I think was 21 of the Macross saga. It was the first black and white comic I owned, uh, as well as the first time I saw cursing in a comic, believe it or not. Now, I wrote about those first three Aliens miniseries, which I have in trade on the blog a number of years ago, and I will say that if you can find the first one, or really all three of them, but the, at least especially the first one, in its original black and white form, if you can find it, I highly recommend it because it is really, really good. Uh, another one was G.I. Joe Special Missions number 26. It was an adventure with the October Guard. It was a book I did own. I remember seeing it in my room at one point or another. I probably picked it up at random when I was on vacation in New Hampshire. And then there were a few bat- scattered Batman comics. My friend let me borrow and read the entire Lonely Place of Dying storyline. Another one let me his- 
trade paperback copy of A Death in the Family, and another gave me his copy of Detective Number 608. That was the first appearance of Anarchy. So uh, there was all kind of random between 87 and 1990. And uh, two, two of those friends, those two friends who loaned me some of those comics, uh, one never really got into comics after buying the few that he had, and he ended up giving me a few of those that he owned because he was just like, I'm getting rid of these, you can have them. The other one uh, actually was my comic collecting friend, my letter hack partner in crime, my friend Harris. And in 1990, he had started his collecting comics about maybe two or three months before I did. So since Batman had come out in 89, he decided to start reading Batman. And I thought that since they weren't that expensive, you know, 75 cents a piece or a dollar at the time, I can't remember, it it might have gone up by then. And I only had to buy two. I, I mean, I know Legends of the Dark Knight was out by then, but it was it was a more expensive book, and it was a not in continuity book. So if I had the choice to spend my money on com- on Batman comics, I was buying Batman and Detective first, and then then would decide uh, whether or not I could get an issue of uh, if I could afford an issue of something else. And uh, when when I came in. We're talking like Batman 450, 451, Detective 617, The Return of Joker, and then that went into The Rise of Tim Drake and his role as Robin. A few months after that, I would be in the comic store again and would pick up two New Titans number 71, and that's, of course, where the Titans hunt started, and my life as a teen Titan began. And that would become the most important series. Like I said, I'd spend years collecting uh, the entire run of the original Wolfman Perez series, as well as the Baxter series, and that's why I wrote it at the very beginning of the blog, because it was that important to me. I have the entire series front to back from DC Comics Presents 26 all the way up to the new titans number 130 i am technically not complete because i'm missing like a handful of the later reprint issues of tales of the teen titans but i can read the thing all the way through and i also have the trades they've been collecting i think they're up to volume 10 or 11 now i don't even need to take my copy of new teen titans number two out of the bag (laughs) and just let it sit there in the long box and i don't know collect dust maybe value (laughs) anyway that's kind of a preamble to all of this uh i like i said i have 11 publications i want to talk about these are they're they're key books maybe they're milestones maybe they're just personally important or whatever and i guess we should just get into it you know like what are those 11 books well just like i did with that original miniseries i'm going to go chronologically so i'll start in 1990 and i'll go to 1995 and i'm going to start with robin number one Robin number one, the first Robin issue, uh, the first of the Robin miniseries, came out on November 13th, 1990. And I, I will mention that all the credit for publication dates, other technical information about any comic comes from either the comic themselves or, in case of the publication date, Mike's Amazing World of Comics. So a shout out to Mike and, and his tireless curation of comic information such such a great resource and such a fun site to look at and you can find that at mikesamazingworld.com so robin number one is incredibly important to me and while some bat-splaining pedant could probably tell me and probably accurately tell me that well actually i was not on the ground floor with tim drake because i did not buy batman 436 off the stand I like to think that that I was, because not only did I come in at Detective 618, this is where his parents get kidnapped by the Obeah Man and, and in Haiti and that whole storyline, 
I was really hyped <laughs> through that story. And any subsequent storyline that dealt with Tim's transition to the role of Robin, and then once he was Robin, from there. Ironically, I missed Batman number 457. That's his first appearance in the Robin costume. It's on the last page. And that's because at the time, I was not able to get to my LCS every week. And at the time, I didn't know how to pull list worked either. So I, you know, I didn't get it. Um, I, I got it as a back issue, you know, a, a number of years later, uh, sometime later. And I did read the book, though. I read the book when it came out because Harris was able to get a copy. So I would go over. His mom was my piano teacher. So I would go over to his place. And while my sister was taking her lessons, we would hang out, read comics, talk, watch, play video games, watch cartoons. And um, I read his copy while I was was over there. So that last page, man, I, I remember that last page, even though I didn't own it for a little while after the book came out, because it's an epic last page of a comic. And uh, Batman 457, it came out two weeks before this issue. So it primed the pump really well for the Robin miniseries. It was, it was a really, really good idea on, on DC's part to just give him that miniseries and see how it went. And if you're unfamiliar with this book, I think it was published in the Robin A Hero Reborn trade back in the 90s. This was the one where Tim was sent overseas to complete his training. It's a plot device that effectively removed Batman so that Robin could have a solo adventure. So it works really well. And on this adventure, he meets up with Lady Shiva before going up against someone who would become one of his first exclusive villains, a guy named King Snake. Chuck Dixon wrote it, Tom Lyle penciled, and while it's not as gimmicky, it doesn't have the marquee villain that Robin to the Joker's Wild does, the five-issue miniseries is a great action-adventure story for its day. You know, I've covered a number of Chuck Dixon comics in my podcasting days, you know, from the Nom to the Punisher. I've read a lot of his Batman, Robin, and Nightwing series. And what has always struck me is not how not only is he great at writing action and adventure comics that read as if they would wind up on television or in a film for its time, but how well they read as if they fit with their respective characters. Like I said, Dixon was writing the Nom, and he was writing the Punisher around this time, so... You know, you'd think it kind of would be like a Chuck Dixon style story, and it is, but it does not. But the Robin book does not feel like a Nam book. It does not feel like a Punisher book. And I granted those books are way different from each other. But he he really does know how to diversify the characters while having kind of a style as well. It's 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 a mark of a really really good writer um, because he gets their voice down. He also had a handle of writing a teenage character who is relatable. As somebody who was around Tim's age at the time when he started being Robin, I could relate. Now, I should say that I completely devalued my copy of this comic because I took the poster out. There was a Neil Adams poster of Robin standing on a gargoyle in his costume. I framed it. It was on my wall. Um, I have another copy of the poster right now. It's out of the out of the book. Um, if I feel like forking over the exorbitant amount of money that Neil Adams charges for a signature, I might get it signed and framed again. If not, I'm just going to do something with it. I don't know. Anyway, I devalued quite a few comics back in the early 1990s. Uh, the War of the Gods books, they had mini posters in the back of them. I tore them out of the comic and put them on my closet door. Collectors probably would have gasped at this at the time. All right. I don't think anybody's going to gasp at my destroying a copy of War of the Gods number three. But I was still kind of new to that game, you know? Most of the books that were that I had were 
holders from my time collecting G.I. Joe and the Transformers. They've been read so much the covers were practically falling off. I had a lot of rolled spines. I wasn't looking to buy anything that might be valuable. I was kind of just more interested in reading what was there. Robin? Robin was the perfect character for that. Through Batman and Robin, I looked for comics that featured Nightwing. I looked at back issues that featured other versions of Robin, and eventually I would become a Titans fan. And while the Titans hunt and total chaos were my prime events during the first few years of the 90s, my next comic is actually the conclusion of an event that encapsulates the dizzying highs, the crushing lows, and the creamy middles that is following a major storyline, especially back in the 1990s. And that comic was Armageddon 2001, number two. This one came out on September 3rd, 1991, and that would have been right at the end of the summer for me, a summer that was spent buying up as many annuals as I could because it started off with the first issue of Armageddon 2001, an issue that was all about how in 2030 a former superhero had gone absolutely mad, killed every other hero, and took over the world. Then a scientist named Matthew Ryder traveled back in time as Wave Rider, and he discovers that he has the power to look into possible futures of anybody he comes in contact with. So, he goes around the DCU, looking to see if he can figure out who might be possibly be Monarch. And that was the central mystery. So, leading up to issue two, Harris and I scoured every single panel of Armageddon 2001 number one, as well as the crossovers. We did our best to figure out what crossover issues were going to be really important to solving the mystery, as well as searching for clues to his identity. We were obsessed with the color of Monarch's eyes. We wondered if the character of Unity, who was introduced in the Hawk and Dove annual, would wind up being important in the crossover's conclusion. And it was because of another crossover, War of the Gods, that I figured out that Captain Adam was going to be Monarch. Because at the end of that book, there was something in the letter column that said we should follow his adventures in Armageddon 2001 number 2. Well, <laughs> you know how this ends, right? After months of speculating, the word that Captain Adam was going to be Monarch got out at the last minute. DC changed the ending to have the identity of the villain be Hank Hall, the superhero known as Hawk. I was never a fan of the change, as even if I knew it was Captain Adam going in, it wouldn't have mattered to me as long as the story was good. And really, if you read the buildup in the book, Captain Adam's future is so vicious. This is in Armageddon 2001 number 2. Like, the future that Captain Adam sees is so vicious that it's setting up a huge confrontation between Cap and his evil future self, perhaps even with the rest of the heroes. And it would have been, like, a really cool kind of, like, Greek tragedy storyline of, like, this is this my fate? Can I escape my fate? Can I change my fate now? Yes or no type of thing? Like, you know, I'm fated to become this person. I'm going to take on my future self and then, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, but we got Hawk. <laughs> And really, there's no reason for Hawk to be Monarch. I mean, Dan Jurgens does his best to retcon it in the lead-up to Zero Hour by making him kind of more powerful than he seemed. It's still one of the... This, this still remains one of the most disappointing moments of the 90s and of the post-crisis DC universe. Man, though, despite that, I love that crossover. I would love for it to be republished in some sort of omnibus or something. I mean, there's so many great stories in the individual annuals. And honestly, I feel a bit of ownership here. Crisis on Infinite Earths was a series that I was chasing in back issue bins at the time because um, a, the guy down the block from me had a bunch of comics and he it, somehow I ended up with his copy of Crisis 12. So like 
I, I would like, you know, check the back issue bins at the else uh, at amazing comics. Like every time I was in there to see if there was another crisis issue. And then, and at one point, like I had like one, four, seven, like six, seven, nine, 10, 11, and 12. So I, and I would like read those obsessively and it didn't matter if I had missing chapters. And then I eventually got all of them and I read it and reread it. It was just so great, but it was five years before I started collecting. But Armageddon 2001 was the first one that DC had done since Invasion. It was the first one that I was absolutely there for, entirely there for. So it's kind of mine in a sense. I mean, it wasn't created for me, but you know what I mean. Like, you know, you're, you're, it's the one that you were there for. So, like, you feel, I, I just, it, 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 it's part of me in a way that, like, Legends or Millennium wouldn't be. So, and that's why I love that book so much, even though the ending is, you know, kind of a lesson on, uh, hey, don't get your hopes up, kid, right? So, next up is, we're going to hop over to Marvel for Uncanny X-Men. <laughs> yeah, Uncanny X-Men 290. This was the first issue in my X-Men phase. And you know what? I think that's a real thing. Or at least it was for a number of us who were collecting comics at that time. I'm not sure it's as ubiquitous as what Shag refers to as someone's Batman phase. And I'm sure that there are people who collected in the 90s who were successfully able to avoid Marvel's most famous mutants. And I know that those people might be listening. And they might be smug about how they didn't jump on that bandwagon. And for those who did jump on that bandwagon, even if it was for a little bit, I see you. I was there too. The X-Men was something I was aware of, even as far back as 1987. My friend Evan had both Uncanny number 207 and 208. 207 is noteworthy because it had a John Romita Jr. cover of Wolverine with his claws out having slashed through the cover. I'm 99% sure that this image was used on a cardboard stand-up that was outside of my LCS. It was either that or the Art Adams one, and you know which one I'm talking about, the Art Adams one, where he's like kind of coming toward you with his claws out. Either way, there was a Wolverine stand-up in front of the store. And in addition to that, there were advertisements for the Fall of the Mutants in the Marvel books I was buying back in 87 or so. So... You know, I knew who they were. At least I knew of them. You know, I, of course, did not buy them. And when I began collecting comics in earnest in 1990, I started with DC because I started with Batman because that's what my friend was buying. So the X-Men really weren't even on my radar. And they would have stayed off my radar had my friend Chris not sent me a copy of X-Men number one. I want to say it was the cover with Storm on it. I'm not sure if that was A, B, C, or D. I know E was the one that was the gatefold that was all the covers and it was printed on the, the glossy paper. Anyway, I know that he sent me a copy of that. I know that he bought multiple copies of the book. And I also know that at about a year and a half after that book came out, I got all five of them for a buck. A total... <laughs> at a comic show. This issue came out on May 5th, 1992. And by the end of 1992, I could start picking up Wizard on the regular and I would also start looking at previews. So by then I was still, I was more aware of stuff like Image, what was coming down the pike as far as news was concerned. But really, I was kind of in the woods, you know, like aside from like DC. Chris's gift of issue number one of the X-Men as well as his letters to me about what was going on in those books convinced me that I should at least try them out. In the same month, I bought Uncanny number 290, X-Factor number 80, X-Men number 10, and Wolverine number 57. 
I'm pretty sure that I didn't start buying X-Force until Executioner's Song, by the way. Issue 290 is an odd one to start with because it's Wills Partitio's last issue on the title. It's not a whole lot of action in it either. Yeah, there's a scene where Iceman is attacked by some bad guys while he's out on a date, and I honestly don't remember who attacked him or if it went anywhere. But I do remember that the bulk of the story was about Storm and Forge's relationship. I also remember being really struck by how gorgeous Wills Portacio drew Jean Grey. I picked up issue number 289 soon after this, getting this one, and then I started buying the more recent back issues of the series. And those were a pain in the ass to find, by the way. I mean... Okay, they were they, there were a lot of them because they were overprinted, but they were hard to find on the cheap because they were still like three, four, or five dollar books. Even today, a five dollar book is something I, not necess- I have to really think about whether or not I want to pay for. Some of them were um, even more expensive because, like, they were like the first appearance of Bishop or something. And I'm pretty sure that they were among the one or two orders that I ever placed with American Entertainment. To this day, I don't remember what I actually got from the one order I placed with American Entertainment. But I did pretty much go all in with the X-Books at this point, and I would stop right after both Fatal Attractions and Blood Ties. These were two crossovers. Blood Ties was really the bridge too far for me, and it was for two reasons. First, I remember not liking the story. I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who really like it, but even though I have been reading the X-Men for a year, I couldn't tell you anything about the Avengers at that time but beyond the fact that I recognized Captain America. And I uh, asked myself why I was spending so much money on these Marvel books when I had to turn around and buy deluxe issues or crossover books or just because I was following, you know, just because I was following the title. I didn't have a lot of money to begin with, so I had to be careful with what I bought. And that led to that other reason, which was by the time I was dropping the X books, I was buying mega events on the DC side. You know, zero hour ramp up in '94, and the only non comics or comic related publication on this list has to do with a mega event in D.C. And that's the September 4th, 1992 issue of Newsday. Now, some of you might be wondering why an issue of Long Island's Daily Newspaper is on this list. Michael Bailey, if he's listening, knows exactly why an issue of Long Island's Daily Newspaper is on this list, because it has to do with something he covered on The Fortress of Bailitude. And if you want more about the death and return of Superman and you want a really comprehensive look at it, go to the Fortress of Bailitude. He did he did it for From Crisis to Crisis, and he did just such a great job a number of years ago. It's, it's everything you could ever want about it. And this issue of Newsday is important because this is the article that essentially broke the story to the mainstream public. September 4th, 1992 was a Friday. And more importantly, it was the last Friday of my summer break before going back to school and beginning my sophomore year of high school. I had spent the summer really diving into everything, comics and 90s comics. I'd gone down to Florida to visit Chris. We'd gone to a couple of comic stores. And these were trips that resulted in me in filling in a lot of key early issues of uh, the original New Teen Titans series. Then I went to New Hampshire on my family vacation. I wandered into a bookstore and walked out with a few trade paperbacks that my parents were willing to buy for me. So when Harris called me to tell me that DC was going to kill Superman... We made arrangements to hang out that day and then go to the comic store. And I will say that I wasn't totally in the dark about Doomsday. I mean, in the Direct Currents flyer, this was the pamphlet flyer thingy that DC put out every month. I loved them. I used to hole punch them and put them into a binder. 
Uh, anyway, there was a teaser in there at the end of every Superman title for that month. The blurb was like something, Doomsday, Doomsday is company. It's going to have a big effect on the Man of Steel or something like that. So that's all I knew at this point. You know, I wasn't buying comic shop news or comic scene or wizard or anything like that. So for all I know, Doomsday could have been just the title of a storyline, which it was, but I didn't know it was going to be a character. I certainly did not know it was going to be the death. So when I read the story in Newsday, I thought about the Dark Currents thing I was seeing, and it made sense. I was like, oh, well, that's what that is. So now Mike Bailey has said that people who went to their local comic stores expecting to see the death of Superman on the shelves would have been confused because the storyline they were more likely to see would be uh, Crisis at Hand. It's this two-parter about spousal abuse. We went to Amazing Comics, and right by the register was a sign that gave instructions on how to pre-order the entire Death of Superman and Funeral for a Friend storylines. Bob, who owned it, patiently told both of us what was going to happen and when they were going to come out. And I have a feeling he probably said the same thing to a number of people that day. So then he, we put our names on the list, and uh, we were two people. We were definitely hooked in. This, by the way, reserved me copies of the issues, including the Justice League issues, as well as the polybagged edition of Superman 75 and the newsstand. I never opened the polybagged edition. Never, ever actually saw what was inside it, and to this day have not seen the polybagged edition out of its polybag, except for on like the internet. Now, we do the same for Reign of the Supermen. I did buy two copies of Adventures of Superman number 500. Uh... I had two copies of the newsstand edition for some reason. I don't know why. Maybe somebody gave one to me. Because I wouldn't have bought two issues, the, two versions of the newsstand edition. But I did buy two versions of the polybag, two copies of the polybag edition. Because I did regret not buying a second polybag 75. Because I wanted a reading copy. Or maybe that's just what I tell myself. Because I was participating in the speculation boom at that point. I don't know. I did get this really cool keychain. It was yellow. It had a bloody S on it. It had something like, we will remember him always or something. And I had it. It was my keychain for years. And then freshman year of college, I lost my dorm room keys. And therefore, I lost the keychain. Have never. I don't know what the hell happened to them. Never was able to find that thing again. So anyway, I was on the ground floor uh, with this event. I would also be on the ground floor with Nightfall. But that's what's even more important here is that uh, the, the Death of Superman, Nightfall, these were the first step toward my discovering what a pull list was. You know, up until this point, I had just come into the store just about every week and grabbed what I wanted or what I needed. And now I was reserving these comics. And at some point in the next year or so, Bob would tell me about what he called the Amazing Comics Club. Uh, and up until a couple, it's like last Maybe last year I was cleaning out an old, uh, just a pile of like um, rewards cards and stuff that I shoved in like, you know, somewhere. And I found my card for it from years ago. Uh, you paid about, that was like $10 to join. You got a back issue discount. You got a pull list. I think previews came with it or something. But he told me you have this pull list. And if you can't get to the store every week, you can, you know, have all your comics set aside. This is one of the coolest things ever. I mean, damn you know we all went through that toys r rust uh nightmare of seeing the toy one day and coming back to buy it with your money and there wasn't anything there and you had to settle for a peg warmer here 
I just, it, it's it's set aside. <laughs> I could just come in when I needed it. And uh, it leveled up my commitment to buying comics. Plus, I started getting previews. And while we all flip through previews and we all have our issues with Diamond, and I can't dismiss it as one of the most influential things in my career as a comic book collector, I still kind of get a bit of joy when it's previews week. It's like getting the Sears Wish Book at Christmas, you know, but on a monthly basis. Because I can see it'll be coming out a few months from now. And I, I know I'm not going to buy those statues and those pop figures and all the stuff that's in there, the clothes, but I'm just like, yeah. This, it's just fun. It's fun to see what's out there. And honestly, if I had not read summaries and previews over the years, I wouldn't have been able to explore the number of books or independent publishers that I've branched out and beyond. You know, I have nothing against the big two. I still love the big two. But, you know, I've in recent years, I found myself getting some serious enjoyment beyond their confines. Funny enough, that technically started with Aliens, over a dark horse because when I started buying Batman and Detective I picked up Aliens Earth War and Aliens vs. Predator but take away licensed properties from an independent comic publisher and you have like kind of their own characters and the superhero character the character that I started an independent comics relationship with the very first one was the star of my next book and it spawned and the book is issue number five of Spawn. This came out about a month after the Newsday story about the death of Superman. And at this point, I was already buying the book uh, because Chris had given me a copy of Spawn number one when I visited him in Florida that summer. And uh, he told me that it was going to be really important. He, talked, he told me who Tom McFarlane was, although I kind of knew because I had the Batman Year 2 trade. And uh, he was giving me all the background on what Marvel did and what Image was, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Spawn would be the title I collected because he gave me the book. And I guess issue two shipped late enough for whatever that um, I was able to get it off the stands, which is a pretty uh, was a pretty big deal because um, issue number twos were usually lower printings than issue number ones at the time. Anyway, um, I would buy Spawn all the way to about issue 60, 65, I think. And I finally... I had it, like, all the way until I sold my entire collection of the title uh, for about 80 bucks back in 2001. In fact, I remember that at sale. It was on eBay. I've been on eBay since about 2000, 2001, and uh, it was in the fall of 2001, and this is around the time when I was doing a pretty huge purge of my comics collection. I put these enormous lots up on eBay, and then it would take huge packages of the Metro with me to the post office near my, where I worked in Bethesda, Maryland. You know, and that meant sitting with this package for 45 minutes <laughs> on two Metro trains because I lived in Arlington uh, and I made a few hundred dollars. I made enough money to put a down payment on an engagement ring. And uh, the Spawn auction at that time was my biggest seller. It would have been closer to $100 had the person who not won the auction told me that his money order was in the mail repeatedly and then went on to blame the anthrax scare because I never got it, and I was like, look, I'm not, I'm stupid, but I'm not that stupid, so I was like, look, let's just cut bait, I won't give you negative feedback, and I'm going to release this and repost the auction, and it ended up selling for about $80. I think the most I ever sold a bunch of comics for was I sold the lead-up to all of, and one of the two of the aftermath storylines of Infinite Crisis, 
for about 125 bucks back in 2006, 2007. And that's still, that $80 is still a pretty good price, uh, at least in my mind. I mean, for, for those 65 comics, I, 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 if I could get 80 bucks for an auction like that, I'd be happy. This comic, by the way, getting to the specific issue, reminds me of those days when selling on eBay was a little more lucrative. Not as seamless as it would have would be now, but and I guess I could sell them for more, or at least in my current LCS, the early issues, because um, they they probably have a couple that would go for like maybe ten twenty dollars. But you know that was nineteen years and four moves ago, so the the chance of me actually having everything that I had nineteen years and four moves ago, even though I still have a ton of shit in my house, is uh, not very high. Anyway, I list this comic and non-issue number one as important because whereas issue number ones are the first storyline of the series, they almost are like a mini-series. Issue five feels like the first part of the ongoing, kind of like the Transformers. Anyway, this is a one-and-done story. It centers around Billy Kincaid, a pedophile serial killer who Spawn eventually kills in the name of using his role in Hell's army as a force for good and not a force for evil. I read this particular issue more than any of the others that I had at the time and probably came back to it more than any of them as well. Why? It wasn't the McFarlane artwork and story. I had plenty of that in the other issues I was collecting. It was actually the mature content. Up until this point, I hadn't read or seen much dark material in comics. Yeah, I own both Dark Knight Returns, I own Watchmen, so I was at least a little familiar with what we might call a mature theme. But this was different. This was graphic. This dealt with things that were utterly abhorrent as far as humanity was concerned. I don't want to say that I thought this was a cool comic by any means, but because even back then when I was a teenager, and I was horribly immature as a teenager, by the way, I didn't find a character like Billy Kincaid cool. But this issue does come on the heels of movies like The Silence of the Lambs, stories I've been reading in the news about Jeffrey Dahmer. So there was certainly an allure when it came to a serial killer story or a serial killer villain. For me, being 15, this was an edgy comic, an edgy on a level that I understood instead of other stuff that might have been out there and mature, but that I didn't really get, to be completely honest with you. I'll admit it. I, like I said, I was immature. I, I was naive. My perception of the adult world was what I found through paying attention to my parents and my older cousins, but also movies, televisions, some of the porn my friends had. That's a whole other episode of a show, by the way. Really, though, when we talk about those teenagers who are being catered to by the grim and gritty comics that are just gratuitously gory or sexual, which is not really mature, I was definitely one of those kids back in the early 90s. That's why I own the Homage Studios Swimsuit Special Number 1, which is my next book. And it technically wasn't my first swimsuit special. That would have been a Marvel one. But there was something cartoonish and silly about the Marvel one more than sexy or titillating. This one? Well, Homage Studios... If you're not familiar with it, it was Jim Lee's arm of Image Comics. It's where he published Wildcats. It would eventually become Wildstorm. 
this was a book, um, Wildcats was a book I bought in its original four issue miniseries, but then I ditched after it seemed like the book was doomed to like actually never coming out. <laughs> I mean, maybe I'm exaggerating and it didn't actually take a year and a half to simply publish four issues of a comic book, but damn that series dragged. Anyway, this was a book featuring the members of Wildcats as well as Stormwatch and other books that Homage was publishing at the time. I remember two parts of this. First, the cover featured a shot of Voodoo. This is the Wildcats team member who was working as a stripper when we first saw her. She was shown from the rear, so her back was to us, and she's wearing a thong, so we got both cheeks, but no top, so you can kind of imagine her breasts are exposed on the other side of the illustration. It was uh, by Jim Lee with Brian Stelfreeze doing the inking. The other shot that I remember was of a Stormwatch character named Fahrenheit, who I believe had not actually made her first appearance yet in the actual book. This was, uh, I believe it was a Jim Lee pose. She was wearing a fishnet suit that had more or less torn at the bottom. Uh, she's crawling on her side. It's across a double-page spread so that we say, see the side of her left cheek. I, I googled this, so I got the description of the image correct. Um, anyway, she's wearing this fishnet suit. There's really nothing on the left on the bottom, and uh, she's crawling on her side across this double-page spread, so we see the side of her left cheek, and she's squeezing her breasts between her arms. It's very Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, and I should know that because at that point I had like three or four of them. Not the Amish Studio special, but the swimsuit issue. I actually read the articles in the swimsuit issues, too. To this day, I don't know how much I should admit to owning this, which I am, or flipping through it multiple times, which I did. It's almost... Well, I don't want to use the word vulgar here, because this isn't necessarily vulgar in the terms that we would use today, because in looking at it, most of the illustrations are actually pretty tame. But whereas I always thought the Marvel stuff was a little tongue-in-cheek, this seems to be played too straightforward. It, count, it counts too much on immature idiot kids like me to think that these were honestly hot. You know, like, yeah, it's like this woman could actually exist and not just on a page drawn or in a fantasy somewhere. Kind of like, you know, how other books were hot at the time, like Bloodstrike number 1, my next book. That came out a couple of weeks after the Homage Swimsuit book came out. This is the Feel the Blood gimmick cover. I was reading a recent blog post. Uh, I was talking about gimmicks. They were saying that the cover actually didn't read the uh, the cover actually didn't work the way it was supposed to. I think you were supposed to be able, either able to rub the blood on the cover and it would go away or it would appear, but it never actually happened like that. So it just kind of looked like somebody had spilled strawberry jelly on it and tried to wipe it up or something. Anyway, it's the darkness, and I kind of like, I group these three things together because it's the darkness of, of Spawn number five, uh, the titillation of the Amish Swimsuit Special, and what was essentially a gratuitous cartoon violence, which was Bloodstrike. It was a Rob Liefeld, Extreme Studios, big guns, coverting, everybody dying on every page type of thing. These were the appeals of the early image books. Uh, I dropped them as quickly as a number of people or other people did in 1993. You know, I was spending a lot of money on buying books that were either complete fluff, unintelligent in their storytelling. I mean, so unintelligent that they got insulting at one point or another. Uh, so I, I got disillusioned by them pretty quickly. And they also didn't come out as much as they should. And I think that was the other thing that a lot of people could point to. 
Chris, uh, my friend in Florida, also got pretty disillusioned quickly with them. I remember at one point or another, um, we used to make talk about how like we were really frustrated by and wouldn't buy books that were done by Rob Liefeld's cronies, I believe was the phrase we used. Although we did both buy Deathmate Red because we bought like all of the Deathmate issues. And, um, and that kind of leads into where I can slow down a little bit and talk about Wizard number 29. Because that came out at the end of 93, beginning of 94. And I'm actually amazed by how reading my image books, these my reading these image books only lasted that year. Now, like I said, this issue. Now, like I said, this issue was going to be uh, the centerpiece of the book, and it really, I am going to slow down and give it more coverage. The cover date's January 1994. I don't have a pub date for it. Probably around December or January, so around the end of the year, because it was the 300-page year-end spectacular, which was the banner across the top of the cover, which has Bart Sears drawing Spawn fighting the Violator. It's a year in review issue for 93. I picked it not only because it is one of maybe four wizard issues that I actually own at this moment, but because having read through it, I think it's one of the best artifacts for what I've said at the beginning of the show was the motherfucking 90s. Because it came out at the end of the year that I once referred to as the most 90s year of the 90s. And it would also a year that marked the beginning of the bust. My original idea for this episode, as I said at the top of the show, was to take a really thorough cover-to-cover look at Wizard the Guide to Comics number 29. But as I read through it, I realized a couple of things. First, that would have been really boring. I mean, you're probably already bored. Probably bored the ever-living shit out of you over the course of the last, I don't know, 30-45 minutes. But as I mentioned up top, this episode was one that evolved from this original idea. So I'm going to get a little more in-depth and at least talk about some of the articles in the magazine. Especially because in my reread, I noticed that this was not as much of a crazy hype machine as I thought. Oh, it's there, trust me. But the magazine is also a little more prescient about what was going on in the industry than I once realized. But let's start with the hype, shall we? Come on, that's why we come to Wizard. And to do that, I actually have to go back and more or less work my way forward. So it means starting at the end of the issue with the price guide and kind of coming back to the articles. The price guide was easy, one of the, easily one of the more notable parts of Wizard. Bailey and I took a look at this back in the Wizard episode that I guessed it on, but it bears repeating here uh, be, because whereas... A book like Overstreet would give you the value of stuff on a regular basis. Wizard tracked things from month to month using a color-coded system. Books highlighted in red were going up in value because they were hot. And the type of back issues that were hot property. Books in blue were the ones that had decreased in value, going cold. And the books in green were brand new. Effectively, this turned collecting comics into playing the stock market. So just like Wall Street Guy would open up the paper in the morning to see how stocks did, Comic Fanboy Guy could open up Wizard to see what was going up or down in his collection. So what was going up this month? Well, a bunch of the Reign of the Superman comics were commanding at least double the cover price. Anything Valiant that had to deal with the Unity crossover was in the $10 to $20 range. The pre-Nightfall issues of Batman, specifically 488 and 489, are $16 to $17 each, and Vengeance of Bane was going for $32 for the first printing. Conversely, G.I. Joe number 1 and 2 were only priced at $5 and $6 each 
respectively. That would have been awesome if I was still trying to get my hands on old G.I. Joe books. Because at the time I was collecting back in 1987, that was, G.I. Joe number one was a $25 book. G.I. Joe number two was going on somewhere north of like 40 bucks because it was so hard to find in first printing. Early issues of the Valiant title Harbinger were going in the, in the double digits, as were early issues of Magnus Robot Fighter and Ray, Rye. Early image books were more than 10 bucks, and if they had the Image Zero coupon still inside of them, they were even hotter. It's not too crazy as far as the value is concerned. I can totally see the speculation in the fact that some of the major crossover events that had just ended or something, like the death of Superman or Nightfall, they were really hot, so they had the thing was still going on, and, and people wanted to still go back and get the earlier ones, and maybe they had sold out. Stuff like books that were hot now, but had small early print runs, where now the early issues were worth something serious because of their rarity. But at the same time, a lot of the books listed, they're right just right above cover price, maybe a dollar more, and really, and the really expensive books they price, like the stuff that would be a hundred something dollars, is the stuff you'd expect. Avengers number four, for instance, you know, some of them that are still that were priced high, double digit pricing, have a little bit of stay on, staying power on the aftermarket. Uncanny X Men number two forty eight is that's Jim Lee's first X Men book. That was a twenty five dollar book back in nineteen ninety three, and a near mint copy on eBay has fetched about twenty to twenty five dollars in mint condition. Although eBay still has done a pretty good job of leveling the playing field here because there's also copies that have gone closer to 10 bucks. One thing that tickled me, by the way, was the specificity that Wizard would put on multiple versions of huge books. You know, like Spider-Man number one. Running down the list, we have the black cover for $8. The black cover, but bagged, for $25. The green cover for $6. The green cover with the UPC for $12. The green cover bag for $13. The platinum cover for $300. The second print gold cover for $6. The second print gold cover with the UPC for $18. I mean, that's really specific. <laughs> it's not as huge of a price jump as, say, the first issue of Marvel Star Wars, which went for $15, bucks, but if it was the $0.35 cent cover with the UPC, it was $375. Kids, check your long boxes. If you were really chasing hot back issues, by the way, especially recent back issues, you didn't necessarily go right to the price guide. You checked out a section called the Wizard Top 10. And this is where Wizard says they went around and they talked to comic shop owners. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. And then maybe they had a bunch that they sold comics to through Preview, through Diamond or Capital City, and they, they called them up. Part of me thinks they like w went to like three comic shops near their office and just talked to a couple of guys. But, you know, whatever. Um, if you were chasing hot back issues, you went to the section and they said, this is what's moving. And most of this was recent stock. It was fairly recent. So here we've got a bunch of Daredevil stuff because this is like when the Man Without Fear, the Frank Miller, John Romita Jr. storyline was out. Uh, there was the Fall from Grace storyline. I think that's the one that gave us that like weird like motocross Daredevil suit. Stephen Platt's Mood Night run had two issues on the hot thing there. Prime number two, which I don't think this book has held its value as much as it did back in the day but i do understand it kind of ties into what i was saying about issue number twos being bit bigger than issue number one sometimes because of print runs so i guess the idea was that wizard was setting up suckers to go to their lcs's and overpay for back issues i mean granted 
where else, what else would you do? I mean, or maybe they would try to sell them. Uh, this is the days before eBay, so that's any the only place I could think about going unless you wanted to set up like a, a table at a card show or something like that. And I suppose that some people did that. I didn't have mobility or access to those things. I had my bike and I had one comic store, maybe two or three if I was able to go to the mall. But so for the most part, you were tricked into thinking you were sitting on a gold mine. <laughs> this is where the speculation happened. This is where this is where you became convinced that this book that was in Wizard was going to be continue to be really really valuable. Especially these random issues of Moon Knight, like, you know, oh, this is this is the, you know, the Alpha Flight issue that Jim Lee first drew, you know, that sort of thing. And and 20 years from now I'm going to be able to spend this and buy a steak dinner or pay my kids college tuition. We all know what happened there. And adding <laughs> adding to all the speculation were the ads in the magazine. And this, oh my god, this was hyping things the holy hell. <laughs> Granted, it's the that's the purpose of an ad, but I have to wonder with some of them whether or not the company in question spent more on their ad budget than they did printing the actual comics. On the gatefold cover, uh, you have Malibu hyping CD Romics as well as Rocket Comics featuring metal legends like Lita Ford and Ozzy Osbourne. Extreme Studios has a like a catalog. <laughs> you know, you've got like. A double-page spread ad for Extreme, which is a collage of Extreme covers featuring Youngblood Brigade, Bloodstrike, and just the ad for Dooms 4 because it wasn't out yet, even though I think it was supposed to be out for, like, a while. And then, after that, there's this two-page ad for Extreme swag. Like, you have a baseball jersey, a baseball cap, a hoodie, and dog tags. Yeah, dog tags, man. And there's masks you can order. There's statues. There's a whole catalog. There's even an order form. I have not been able to find any Extreme Studios swag online, by the way. I wonder if any of that stuff goes for anybody thing, or if anybody has that in a closet. There's some Goodwill store in, like, San Diego with a bunch of Rob Liefeld stuff. <laughs> anyway, um, Extreme bought all this money, bought, took, gave Wizard all this money to advertise, and yet later in the issue, Wizard spent some time at Liefeld's expense in an article about what 2003 in comics would look like, which is one of those silly speculative things. It was like McFarlane buys Marvel. <laughs> Cerebrus ends, which it kind of did, and I think it was the only thing that really came true. Uh, there was like 20 million sequels to Nightfall. It's almost as funny as fun to read as the Sports Illustrated article that was written when the baseball season ended in 94, and... They had, like, the Cubs beating the Red Sox in the World Series and, like, Michael Jordan coming up to the majors. It's, it's a really funny speculative article, like, what would have happened had they not the strike not halted the end of the season. Anyway, <laughs> um, one of the things about that, there was a thing about how Deathmate Red would finally be released in 2003, and there was a slipcase edition of all the other ones available so that you could just kind of pop Deathmate read into it or something. But Extreme Studios, you know, was one of the, well, extreme examples of 90s. And, and that's a good segue into what surprised me about this issue of Wizard, which was the number of people they talked to, both professionally and fans, decrying what comics had become in 1993. Even the magazine itself, in its year in review and look ahead portions, suggested that maybe companies had gone too far with the chromium, 
especially because the fans they talked to complained about the amount of money they were being asked to fork over. Especially when there was a glut of stuff out there and not all of it was very good. A quick look at Mike's Amazing World for December of 1993, which is probably right around the time this issue of Wizard came out, sees five zero issues as well as 15 other comics that had some sort of enhancement. These included Wildcats number seven. Uh, there was a mid, this, there was a Rise of the Midnight Suns crossover that looked like it had some sort of special cover trade dress or, or even some sort of gimmick that looked like blood and foil. Um, Action Comics 695 had a foil cover. Bloodshot Zero was a chromium foil cover. Iron Man 300 was a chromium foil cover. Even Marvel's number one, which kind of gets a pass because it's a prestige format book, still had like an acetate overlay over the Alex Ross cover. And even though Iron Man number 300 probably warrants some sort of special edition, a number of these are just there to get noticed, and I can completely see why fans were starting to get tired of them and were saying that they didn't feel special anymore and were tired of shelling out money for stuff that they didn't necessarily like. And like I said, even the magazine itself had to admit that 1993 was not a huge year as originally thought. Deathmate, for instance, was the biggest dud and because of Image's massive shipping delays. And those delays meant that the two most anticipated parts of the crossover, the ones that specifically came from Image and not Valiant, came out much later than originally intended. And at the time um, the book was published, Red had not dropped yet. So you had a lot of comic shops just kind of with copies of black... Uh, blue, like just just laying around because people were just like, you know what, I don't want this anymore, and uh, you know the writing was kind of on the wall, and it sounds incredibly ignorant, by the way. I mean, I honestly wasn't reading the articles as closely as fifteen, <laughs> as I was at fifteen when I was, as I did when I reread this issue, but you know, I didn't see it at the time. I, you know, I, I didn't speculate as much anyway. Yeah, I did have two copies of the polybagged edition of Adventures of Superman 500 and bought a couple of those early image books, but I think my age combined with the fact that I came in about a year late to all the really expensive issues and started reading the wrong company's books, DC, not Marvel, meant that I wasn't chasing down mutant books at the pace of other people. Maybe if I'd started buying the X-Books off the stands in 89, maybe if I'd kept just reading Spider-Man from 1987 onward... After finishing Craven's Last Hunt, I would have had some very valuable books, you know, because McFarlane started on Spider-Man soon after, right? But then again, those books would have been rolled spine, cracked spines, worn, because I would have been re reading them and reading them and reading them. So the condition would have been like, yeah, no, this is barely worth the amount of money you ended up paying for it. Wizard number 29 is a benchmark for me because... Like I said, even though I really only indulged in image and 90s-ness and all those things for about a year, I still did. And 1994 is a huge transition year for me. Zero Hour consumes a lot of my energy later in the year and a lot of my money. And uh, it's great. I really like Zero Hour. It, I mean, it has its flaws. It does leave a little bit to be desired in some places, especially in the main series. But... As I covered in my series episodes on 1994, um, this is a year that's transitional just in life anyway. You know, yeah, 
part of it's my social life and the fact that I finally would end up getting a girlfriend, but it was also because I was entering my senior year of high school and I was starting to think more earnestly about the future. I didn't know if comics were going to be there. They were, but, you know, you don't necessarily know what you're going to do. I mean, you're buy- I was buying, like, CDs as much as I was buying comics and, you know, hanging out with people who had different interests than I did. So, you know... I come out of 93 and I come into 94 and then the summer of 94 and I come into 94, 95 and I'm, I'm not like completely changed, but there are like kind of demarcations and, and things that I can think about, like of how I was different my junior year through my senior year and things like that. And, you know, this could be the end of the story. You know, I could really just be like, okay, I bought into the 90s hype for a little while and then I was done, and I still collected, but no, but the 90s were over. But honestly, it's not the end of my collecting days. You know, it's I, I don't think I became a comics reader until the 2000s. I mean, I was reading comics in the 90s, but like, you know, the idea of a comic collection and buying more and buying more was still my thing in the 90s all the way up until probably the 2000s. And I, by then, I just wanted to read stuff, you know? And I, there are a couple of other issues on this list that came out after Wizard number 29 that are still important to me. Damage number one is one of them. This is a series I actually plan on covering in a full episode. It only lasted 20 issues, and I was one of the few people who collected it all the way through. And then I followed the character into, like, the Titans and stuff. But what I have is a preview copy. <laughs> I got it in the mail... It's completely out of the blue. It ha- I have a letter with unofficial DC stationery. It says that my status as a favorite letter writer meant that I had the opportunity to preview what was going to be in their next big title. It wasn't their next big title because it only lasted for, what, like I said, 20 issues. But I did write a letter. I did have that published. And a couple of years later, I got a similar preview for an issue of Deathstroke, which um, I wrote that about in my Life as a Teen Titan series. Um, I have it actually signed because I brought it with me to the Baltimore Comic-Con a few years ago and, and, and showed it to Marv Wolfman and explained, you know, they sent me this because I used to write letters in and, and, and was a fan of the book. Um, and, and he was like, oh, this is a galley copy. So he, I have his signature on the first page of it. But uh, to this day, you know, I have this black and white bound galley copy of Damage Number One, and it's one of the few unique comic book artifacts that I own. I never see the creators' names on the list for Baltimore Comic Con. Maybe one day I will, and I will totally bring it with me and have them sign it and talk to them about it. And it's not an important thing in comics history. It's not like I own a jack kirby fantastic four page or something but it was a pretty big moment moment in my nerddom because i felt like i was pretty damn important you know like i was a fan that they thought of to give this so i was more than just an average basic fan of course the next thing i do is go out and be a basic bitch and buy the spawn batman crossovers and I'd say as far as crossover events go, you know, if, if Armageddon 2001 told me that there could be a disappointing ending to something, this along with, like, Deathmate, where the, this showed me that things could be a total disappointment, right? Um, Deathmate was pretty anticipated, but this was more anticipated than Deathmate, because um, even though Valiant and Image were up-and-coming comic companies and they were pretty hot at the time, this was easily two of the more 
really, really big characters in comics. You have Spawn, which was McFarlane, which is probably probably Image's biggest draw, um, or at least one of them. And then you have Batman. So this is this is this is the big time. And the 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 image issue is gonna be Frank Miller and Todd McFarlane, so then you have that. DC would do Batman Spawn War Devil that was written by the Batman writing team without by Klaus Jansen. Um, that one's the lesser of the two. The Miller McFarlane one was, well, delayed. That's <laughs> where I remember that. But, and, and, cause it, it had like, and it had like hype, 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 because there was a cover by Miller and McFarlane on Wizard Number 24. A cover that was so hyptastic that the image, no pun intended, was the entire cover. So the wizard logo was just like tiny and in the corner as opposed to like, you know, being big. Uh, but Wizard number 24 came out in August 20 of 93. Batman Spawn War Devil came out in March of 94. And Spawn Batman was finally released in October of 94. So you're talking about more than a year after the wizard cover and seven months after the DC one. I don't think that was what was intended to be honest with you. Maybe the Wizard cover was meant to be way pre-hype because it was kind of around the time they announced it, but I I had a feeling that both of those were supposed to come out around the same time, and they never did. And funny enough, not only was, a, was I a basic bitch buying both of them, I was the wrong kind of fanboy. I found the DC one more enjoyable at the time. Yeah, Klaus Jansen's art really leaves something to be desired. But the story I remember centered around the lost colony of Roanoke and the fact that Croatoan was actually the name of some demon or something. Um, Spawn and Batman teamed up to stop it. You know, uh, it's not perfect. I liked, I guess I like the historical urban legend angle because it's a really, really interesting legend to me. The Miller McFarlane one, I honestly had no idea what was going on in it when I read it. 25 years ago it was just incomprehensible and i remember outwardly wondering like what was going on and i think that was the moment when i realized that i had to be better with my own choices yeah i flipped through wizard number 29 but like i said i probably looked at the pictures and the ads and the price guide and skimmed the articles and had some fun with it but really didn't get the whole this is all going to come crashing down idea and I was getting myself out of all these overhyped crossover things anyway because I really wanted to get into like what I really liked and more of what I liked. And Zero Hour was the big thing, the big push for that. But here I was like really, really excited for Spawn Batman. And I just remember it being such a letdown. So I was like, you know what? Like, I'd rather spend my money on music and going to the movies and my girlfriend. And these comics would start taking a back seat. I'd buy the ones that I bought on the regular. Detective. Um, got sucked into a couple of new titles. I remember buying all of the Rebels title after post-Zero Hour. The Legion of Superheroes post-Zero Hour. Some of the Superman books here and there. Uh, Robin, you know, Nightwing when it came out. But really, it kind of just tapered off to like me just kind of selectively reading and, and beyond that, just every once in a while picking an issue up of something that looked interesting. And I'm ending this episode with this, not with this book, Spawn Batman, but with one more book, Marvel vs. DC, number one. This, of course, was not the end of my collecting, but I think it's significant because 
I missed this when it came out. I didn't put it on my pull list. I did get one or two issues at my LCS, but I also got one or two issues at a CVS because I happened to be picking something else up. And for all I know, I was probably buying condoms because I can't think of anything other reason I was going to a CVS in the mid-90s. And the book was on a spinner rack, so I didn't send any votes in. I wasn't really tied into like the matchups or the fights. I did buy some of the Amalgam books because I happened to be at my LCS when some of them came out. But it seemed really foreign to me when I read it. I mean, I knew the characters, I could follow what was going on, and I enjoyed the story, but at this point I was in college, and there was so much else going on that my comics collecting was just me going through the motions. Like I said, I bought the titles that I really wanted to buy, and that was about it. So, Marvel DC kind of like was this symbol of the first big divergence in my comic collecting. I mean, it wouldn't be the last, I'd get really back into it, I'd regroup... There'd be times since the mid-90s where I would have been locked into the DCU, or at least a certain corner of it. But then there were times where I just not paying attention, finding my joy elsewhere, and then coming back. And right now I'm actually in another place where I've taken a number of steps away from where I started. My pull list, as far as DC is concerned, is the new Legion of Superheroes title, the, lo- the Lois Lane miniseries, the current Black Label Wonder Woman book, and Far Sector. Three out of those four are miniseries. The rest of my pull list, independent books, most of those are miniseries. Why such a change? My tastes have changed. The books themselves have gone in directions I haven't liked. I don't feel the sense of commitment like I have to keep buying the book if I'm not interested in it. There's also the issue of whether or not I want to spend my money on the stuff. I should also point out that I, while I'm sometimes wistful about these books, I love to collect, leave me behind, I'm not angry. <laughs> but it's funny how I look at 95 and I look at 96 and I look at my interests were at that point, And I look at now, and it's not one for one, but, you know, I'm uncollecting a lot. I'm getting rid of a lot. I'm, I'm hanging on to what I want. And, and, and in collect, uncollecting, I've, I've really enjoyed kind of an exploration of back issues of things like I missed during certain eras. So like I went, I've gone back over stuff like, like the Ostrander suicide squad and, and I've got the Will Payton Starman lined up and I really enjoyed picking up trades of stuff that was a total pain in the ass to find back then. Uh, you know, so now I could just buy the trade or buy the digital copy. And, and again, I like really feel like I've transitioned fully into a reader rather than a comic collector. But I don't want to make some like grand declaration about what my comics collecting is going to be from this point on, because I don't do that, because then I look like an idiot if I go back on my word. I will say that I'm going to continue to read and read what I want to read. I'm going to finish the runs I'm interested in. I'm going to collect and curate my collection. But as for the 90s, I think I will make a declaration that it's probably time to put this to bed as kind of a making fun of the decade, because it's well-worn territory for me at this point. What else is there to say? So that'll do it. Thanks for coming to the uh, one-off sequel of sorts to Origin Story. Next time around, I'm going to be back to Degrassi High, and I'm actually going to finish something there. I'm going to take one last look back at the show. I've been blogging about that show for a few years now, on and off. And I'm going to look at the two-hour finale movie, School's Out. 
Until then, you can check me out on Twitter and Facebook. Don't forget that another episode of Fallen Walls Open Curtains will be dropping in about a week or so. And as always, thank you very much for listening, and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.